Welcome back to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin, I am not an expert, just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. Lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. But what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. Last week, we talked about the world of cannabis, from CBD to THC, and how cannabis products can help us to better manage our MS symptoms. Hopefully you left the episode much more knowledgeable about the topic, regardless of if you believe cannabis is a solution you may choose to explore. Please reach out if you have remaining questions, and I'll be sure to address them in a future episode. This week, we are going to spend some time with Dr. Susan Peyrovi, talking specifically about nutrition and why food is truly the best medicine for us. As we listen, I hope each of us will pay attention to opportunities we may have to adjust our current eating habits so that food becomes our most powerful medicine. Even though I've been privy to Dr. Peyrovi's teachings for years now, I still learn something new every time we talk, and this interview was no exception. Since our conversation is a bit lengthy, I'll just share a brief gratitude today. This week's gratitude is for my garden. This week was the first time I've been able to get outside somewhat consistently in far too long. And I'm talking months rather than weeks. It's been a glorious return and surprisingly insightful. While there were sadly a few losses and some plants that will definitely benefit from some additional care for a while, it amazes me what has survived and even thrived on its own without my attention for so long especially since we topped out at 118 degrees this summer and had a very long spell of extremely hot, humid days, as well as very toxic air from the fires all around us. This very powerful display of resilience has been a good reminder that we can make it through hard times, even with very little sustenance. We are tougher than we think. We must persist. The only thing constant in life is change, We'll get where we want to go, but it just may take a while, especially when life throws some additional twists and turns onto the path. It's also a great reminder that even when I don't have the capacity or make the choice not to overextend myself to help others, that they too can flourish in my absence. And get this, maybe even more than if I were there. As a coach, it could often feel like people's successes were contingent upon my ability to help them. But MS is teaching me a lot about humility and how I can actually still help others, maybe even more than I thought, by putting myself first and offering a more hands-off approach. By caring for myself this summer, the garden had to fend for itself, and it did just fine. 
I spent some time reflecting on this by our waterfall pond, and it was really helpful to examine other places in my life where I might be overextending myself to help others, and inadvertently preventing them from learning to thrive on their own. And so I ask you this, the same question I asked myself. Are there places in your life, too, where you might be overextending yourself to help others, whether it be people, plants, pets, etc.? where maybe retreating and letting them learn to fend for themselves just a little might be possible and really powerful? Definitely good food for thought, given that this episode is dedicated to nutrition. Today, we are fortunate to have another visit from Dr. Susan Peyrovi to talk about nutrition. Remember, Dr. Peyrovi will be at our flock meeting this Saturday, so as you listen, be thinking about... One, what opportunities this interview might reveal for you when you think about how you could improve your eating habits? And two, what clarifying questions you may have about nutrition for Dr. Peyrovi? And if you're not a flock member but want to be, what a great time to join us so you'll get to meet her. Without further ado, let's take a listen in on our conversation. Hi, Susan. It's so great to have you back on the podcast. Listeners love hearing from you, as do I. And I'm excited for us to dive into a topic today that we're both really passionate about as a tool for MS symptom management, using food. So first of all, why is nutrition the first thing that people might want to consider working on when looking to make healthy lifestyle changes? Well, nutrition is something that we interact with every day at least two to three times a day. So we already have food on our mind and it's something that we think about intimately, whether it has to do with gatherings with other people, there's a lot of cultural connections. So we're all very familiar with food and it's something we've been doing our entire lives. So doing small changes is not that hard when it comes to nutrition, if you just make the initial changes small and doable. And I know when I started implementing the changes that you suggested, I started feeling better really quickly within a few weeks. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I think that really speaks to the power of food and how our bodies interact with food. Most of us eat and don't really give much thought to what's really happening at the cellular level, the biochemical level, but changing your diet and even if it's simple changes can actually start showing up within a few weeks and i have experienced this personally myself i have had even my children who are very young tell me that and then i get to see it in all my patients who will say i did this one thing and i just can't believe that my joints don't hurt or my skin looks better uh, or my headaches have improved. So food is a really useful tool for improving health. And I think that when we experience those early wins, you know, it was very motivating for me to keep going because I started feeling so much better in a very short period of time. And then I just, I got hungry to learn more and make more improvements. Absolutely. I think, like you said, small wins up front are really important. So I don't think that it works to tell somebody, here's a food plan, start working on this tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. It usually starts very small, 
For example, eat one more vegetable a day, add more color, um, eat less processed foods, cut out sugar. These are the things that will give you noticeable improvement in a short period of time. And they're worth doing because no matter what condition you are experiencing, what symptoms you have, they're going to help you because food has very broad effects on our cellular and biochemical um, background. And so eating a certain food, it's going to turn on hundreds of good um, anti-inflammatory pathways. At the same time, eating a good food will also turn off many pro-inflammatory pathways. So just by choosing what you put into your body, you are sending information down into your cells, into your DNA, and telling your DNA what to do, what genes to turn on. And I think that's really powerful because all of a sudden you realize you actually have control over that process based on what you eat. And how wonderful is it to feel like you have some semblance of control? Because with MS, oftentimes we feel very out of control. And so I think that's another reason why those early wins were so important to me at a time when I did feel out of control. Because all of a sudden I realized, actually, there are simple things I can do to make my life better now. 100% agree with that. I think to be on this path to healing and improving health, you just have to get in the driver's seat and figure out what you need to do to get yourself there. And putting yourself in charge of nutrition and making sure what enters your body is going to nourish you is one way to do that. Other ways include you know, how you're sleeping, exercising and moving, managing stress. Those are all tools that you can use to direct what your body does and where you end up a year or a decade down the line. And what do you believe is most important for someone living with MS to consider when we're thinking about nutrition? I get this question a lot actually in clinic and my approach to it is very practical. And I believe that there's no perfect solution, there's no perfect diet, and there's no magic pill. Um, because if I knew the magic pill, I'd be using it. But, you know, I think if you stick to general nutritional principles that are sound and healthy and safe, you will go far. And it really doesn't matter what you do with the details of it, but I think the big picture um, principles are really important. And can you share a few of those that come to mind? Sure. So I will just say as an aside that at one point I did put together a, a huge list of diets that have been used in the treatment of MS, including the Swank diet, McDougal diet, Walls, etc. And what I try to look for is, well, how did people do after a certain period of time on these diets? And what did these diets provide that allowed people to have, you know, some kind of a positive outcome? And what I realized was that it wasn't that any of these diets had the perfect ratio of fats to carbs to proteins. It was really about following those general pr nutritional principles of eating whole foods. I can't underscore this enough. Eating foods that are unprocessed, unpackaged, 
as they grow in nature, you know, think about it. Like, is this apple how it grew on the tree, you know, or did they do something to it and chop it up and put it into a jar and sell it to you? So I want you to always pick the unprocessed food because that is what nature intended for your body to come in contact with. And when we eat processed foods, we are exposing our bodies to compounds that we were not intended to come in contact with. So I would say start with eating unprocessed foods as much as possible. And then plant-based is really important. Now notice I didn't say you have to become a vegetarian or vegan, but I do think that there's ample evidence out there that plant-based diets have benefits for any condition, not just MS. So by plant-based, I mean that at least 80% of your foods should come from plant-based sources. And most people, when they hear plant-based, they think vegetables. And that's a big part of being on a plant-based diet, but that's not all. I want people to expand their minds of what is plant-based and also include um, nuts, seeds, um, whole grains even, although that's not my favorite group in the plant-based um, world. Oils that are plant-based, fats that are plant-based, these are all really important to have in the diet. So aside from eating unprocessed foods, you're gonna focus on plants and try to get at least 80% of your real estate on your plate to be plants. You can put some fruit in there, but fruits do have sugar and I don't think that that's a necessary or required part of, of a good healthy diet. And then color is really important because color heals. You know, we talk about healing all the time, but we never really define what that is or how it happens. Well, I'll tell you, when you look at brightly colored vegetables, like red cabbage or different colored bell peppers, what you're actually looking at is the phytonutrient or antioxidant molecules that actually emit visible color. And so these are the molecules that protect plant cells when you consume them, they protect your cells. And unfortunately, uh, Western medicine hasn't figured out how to replicate this. So for now, we're just gonna have to eat all of the colors and um, make that really a priority. So ideally you're hitting every color one to two times a day. And you don't have to eat huge amounts of each color. I want you to get a little bit of each color every day. I love that. And there's the really great rainbow recipes online that are just so inspiring and beautiful to look at. So there's definitely a lot out there and, and a lot of ways that we can easily add more color and power to our plates. Absolutely. And you know, when food is colorful, it wakes up your senses, it tastes better, you're going to be more excited about eating it. So really think about color when you're first purchasing your food, get all the colors in your house, and then they'll be ready to go when you're ready to um, put together a meal. Can you talk a little bit about organic and non-GMO food? Absolutely. So this is another topic that comes up a lot and there's a lot of confusion. There have been so many changes in our food system without really the participation of the people who consume the food that it's just become very hard to know what's what, what's um, harmful and what's safe. So again, if we're talking about general principles, I would say that you should try to buy organic as much as possible and as much as you can afford. Not because organic's perfect, but because it's a better choice than conventionally raised foods. 
when something is organic, it means that it wasn't intentionally exposed to pesticides, herbicides, um, fertilizers, um, hormones, antibiotics. There could be passive exposures because our air and our soil and our water is polluted. And so there's no way to avoid those passive exposures, but at least we know that the farmer did not intentionally expose the food or the animal to the items that I mentioned. So um, people do say, well, organic's expensive. And I wanna be really sensitive to that because at the end of the day, it has to be affordable. It has to work for your budget. So there are ways to prioritize what you buy organic. And there are lists, for example, on the Environmental Working Group, the EWG.org, which is one of my favorite organizations where they have lists called the um, Dirty Dozen where these foods are dirty. You should just always buy them organic. And if you can't find them organic, move on. Don't buy it. And then there's the Clean 15, where these foods um, are okay to be uh, purchased conventionally, not organic, um, if they're not available or if they're otherwise too expensive. So I think that helps um, prioritize so that it makes sense. And then to your a question about non-GMO, you know, genetic modification is something that um, our food system has been experimenting with without any thought to its downstream effects on human health. So while we don't know exactly how genetic modification affects human health, there are there is actually data emerging that it um, is likely contributing to the dysregulation of the immune system. And that is what causes conditions like autoimmunity, MS, um, food reactions, etc. So if we're trying to make sure that our immune systems are healthy, then abstaining from genetically modified foods is going to be important. Now, um, it's hard to know what's genetically modified and labels are hard to understand and scrutinize. And there, and there's a lot of um, interest from certain uh, groups to keep this information about consumers. So you might see a non-GMO label, you know, like the size of something smaller than your pinky finger fingernail. <laughs> you know, so I just um, think that it's very difficult to know, but if you buy organic, it helps. It doesn't guarantee a non-GMO product. And you just have to be a really smart consumer and ask questions. I agree, and thank you, that's so helpful. Um, let's talk a little bit about inflammation in terms of animal versus plant proteins. Great question. So when you ask somebody to go plant-based, the first thought in their head is, where am I gonna get my protein? Because we are all protein obsessed for some reason, right? Uh, I think that there are key differences between animal versus plant protein. And if I had to choose, I would say plant protein is superior, and I'll tell you why. Uh, one of the main reasons is that plant protein is less inflammatory. Animal protein is always wrapped up in animal fat, and that fat profile tends to be more inflammatory because there's not enough omega-3 and there's too much omega-6 and saturated fats. That's not really a problem that you encounter in plant-based foods. And another really important consideration 
is the problem of toxins that most of us have not given enough thought to. So when you have an animal that um, has been living on the earth for some time, it is going to have passive exposures to lots of toxins. And that's gonna end up in the, the meat and the fat of that animal. And so when you consume that animal, that toxin load transfers up into you. So it's basically these toxins are working their way up the food chain. And these toxins um, hang out for a long time. They're hard to get rid of. And they can actually do a lot to disrupt human physiology, hormones, immune system. In fact, there's a whole class of them called endocrine disruptors, which is a topic for another time. <laughs> so because plant-based foods have a lower toxic load. Now remember, I don't, I didn't say it's zero. I'm saying that it's lower. I think it's a better choice. So you can get all 20 amino acids. There's about 20 amino acids that make up protein. You can get them from plant-based foods or animal-based foods, but you're going to get a cleaner product if it's plant-based. And if you eat enough variety as somebody who mainly subsists on plant-based foods, you'll get all your amino acids and you will make protein with no problem. That's exciting. I wanted to add too that uh, for me, for example, I have to have protein with every meal or I have a difficult time tolerating some of my medication. And so I used to eat a lot of meat because I felt that was the best way for me to get the protein. And from what I've learned from you, we've cut back so much that, you know, Eric and I used to each have our own steak on our plate. And now we share one and there's leftovers for the next day and even a couple of nibbles for the dog. So, and it's been interesting to see how our eating habits have changed over time. And we really don't miss having more than 20% of our plate being meat-based. You know, it's just a process and you have to be in that mental space of like, I'm going to change my diet and it's going to be gradual and it's going to be fine. And I bet if you went back to your old ways of eating, <laughs> you're shaking your head. Uh, you would feel very heavy after your meal. You might feel lethargic. And you may not notice that until you've gone to a good diet for a period of time and then you come back to your old ways and you go, oh, I don't know how I used to eat like this. You called it. That's exactly what our experience has been. And, you know, we've been obviously spending a lot more time at home during COVID 19. And there were a couple of times when we did order takeout and we ordered things that we used to order and both of us were so full and felt so gross afterwards even though it was high quality food it was just too much and so yes we've definitely really noticed a difference and you don't feel good afterwards at all absolutely so you know part of this process of going towards better health is thinking about how food affects you and doing these small experiments and just paying attention to your body. It's actually a lot of fun to do, especially if you're doing it with another person because you can talk about it and discuss it, but everybody can experience the benefits of food and nutrition um, over a short period of time. Let's switch gears and um, I want to hear a little bit of what you have to say about the microbiome and prebiotics and probiotics. 
Sure. I love talking about the microbiome because it is just fascinating. So the, when I talk about the microbiome, I'm referring to the collection of friendly microbes that live in our large intestines. We should acknowledge that there are many microbiomes throughout the body, for example, in the eye, the nose, the mouth, the skin. But we're going to focus on the uh, bugs in the large intestine. And we have co-evolved with these organisms over thousands, hundreds and thousands of years. So that we have somewhat of a symbiotic relationship with them. So we give them a place to live, we give them nutrients, and in return, they help us metabolize nutrients, they actually help us produce some vitamins. They produce neurotransmitters, which are molecules that are used in communication of the nervous system. And guess what else they do? They educate the immune system. Super important for keeping your immune system healthy and well-regulated. So when there's loss of microbiome diversity, meaning you've lost some bugs and rather than having a, you know, having lots and lots of different types of bugs, now you have lots of just a few bugs, you've now lost some functions that you relied on these bugs to do for you. And so this starts showing up as various symptoms. So how do we support our microbiome? Well, sure, there are supplements. You know, there's a supplement for everything, right? But I don't think that that's your long-term approach. I think supplements for microbiome support are fine for a couple of months, but what you really need to do is to use food as your foundation. So what you wanna do is two things. You wanna make sure the good bugs are present and then you wanna make sure you feed them so that they continue to grow and thrive and to take up space in the large intestine. So what you'll wanna do is to make sure you're introducing new bugs into your body through the foods that you eat and these are your fermented foods, right? Many, many cultures and societies uh, live on these types of foods. It's a part of their culture. They have a little bit throughout time and this keeps up their microbiome. So by fermented foods, I'm talking about, for example, fermented vegetables like sauerkraut, kimchi, there's um, fermented soy uh, like natto or um, uh, seitan. I don't know how to say that word correctly, but I you know, I, I call it seitan. And then there's also fermented dairy, like yogurt or kefir. So you can introduce foods into your body that bring in the good bugs. And these bugs will generally live three to five days in your GI tract. And this is why you'll need to continuously uh, add more of these foods to your diet. So just a little bit of this. You don't need to sit, sit down and eat a giant bowl of sauerkraut. Just a couple of tablespoons with a meal is enough. And variety is really important. So mix it up. Don't eat just kimchi all the time. Have a couple of different fermented things at home. So now you've introduced the bugs into your body. Now the goal is to keep them alive for as long as possible. They feed off of what we call prebiotics. Prebiotics are just a fiber, fibrous foods we eat that contain the right kind of molecules so that these bugs can grow and thrive. So these foods include things like garlic and onion. Uh, let's see, kiwis, bananas, artichokes, a lot of green leafy vegetables. You're probably eating a lot of them already. 
hopefully. But I want you to think about getting them in your diet every day because supporting the microbiome is going to actually have an impactful um, impact on your health. That's great. Now, one of the things I'm struggling with is sugar. Can you talk about that a little bit, the impact on the body and how we can help ourselves eat less sugar? Sure. Well, sugar is addicting and everybody in this country has a sugar addiction because it hits our brain the right way and makes just about anything more palatable. And it's not a, an accident that all of the foods out there that you buy, aside from you know your whole foods that are unprocessed, they're full of sugar. I've had people visit me from China, South America, and what, what they will say is, why is there so much sugar in everything? A Chinese friend of ours said, you know, this isn't what Chinese food tastes like in China. So we've uh, added our own flair to it and put a bunch of sugar into everything to make it more palatable. So it is really hard to come off of sugar. And I tell people, if there's one thing you want to do for your health, if nothing else, just give up sugar. And because there is such um, an addictive potential to have to sugar, you might need to just go off of it for two to three weeks before your body will adjust and go back to feeling normal again. And you'll actually lose your sugar cravings. So What's interesting about sugar is if you've gone without it for several weeks, you will stop thinking about it until you have more sugar, and then that cycle starts over. So you have to be really careful about avoiding it. And I'm not going to lie, if you go, if you are a person who has a lot of sugar in your diet, and you go off of it for a few weeks, you're going to be pretty unhappy for at least the first couple of weeks when your body is sort of detoxing off the sugar. But is it worth it? I would say it's absolutely worth it because if you are working with nutrition and eating more plants and eating more whole foods, but you still have a lot of sugar in your diet, I just don't think that you're going to maximize what you can get out of your diet. And I want all of you guys to go very far and not to make just small um, improvements. And I think cutting sugar out is one of those things that people kind of have an aha moment and they say, I feel so much better now that I'm not eating it all the time. I've cut mine down quite a bit, but I am not yet at the point where I can say that I am one of those people that has cut it out. So thank you very much for that added inspiration. Well, well, let's talk about that, right? And I'll use myself as an example. Before I knew a thing about nutrition, it was my husband who was, you know, in the finance world telling me I should cut out sugar when I got diagnosed with MS. So that's where my nutrition education came from. And I have done a pretty good job over the last de decade of decreasing my sugar intake. Now, is my sugar intake zero? No. Do I have a slice of cake on my kid's birthday? I do. But I also make sure that it's a very small slice of cake and I don't go back for seconds and thirds. Uh, we don't keep ice cream in the house generally. We don't keep a lot of sweets in the house because we make it difficult to access sugar. And you know what? If we're at a restaurant and we do a dessert once in a while, that's totally fine. You know, if at the end of the day, we're human and you want to experience, you know, a sweet, a sweet something and that's okay. As long as it's not your daily regular practice. For sure. 
Now let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about some potential barriers that people have um, when faced with, you know, they, they know they want to be healthier and create healthier meals, but sometimes people will say things like, for example, let's start with affordability. I think we have to get over this idea that healthy food has to be expensive. Okay. You mentioned that you went from eating a steak to now eating less than half a steak, right? Yep. Is there cost savings there? Yes. So people will gawk at the idea of eating organic food because it's expensive. But I think what we don't realize is that animal-based foods are expensive. And if you can cut down on animal products because it's just healthier for you, you'll also save money and you can put that money towards eating cleaner food that's organic and non-GMO. I think also shopping through, I think you use a CSA? Yes, we yeah. use a farm box and it's local, it's all organic. I get a variety of healthy things every week delivered right to me. It's very convenient. Absolutely. So that's another great option. In the past, I've used a service, for example, called uh, Imperfect Produce, where they package ugly food and drop it off at your house for $5. And for me, that makes sense because I don't know if you knew, but about a third of our food supply is actually thrown away because it doesn't meet the aesthetic standards of consumers. And so we just toss it. So these companies have gotten smart and they're repackaging and selling it. So we would get a large box of organic food and I would have to give it away to the neighbors because I just couldn't get through it in time. So that's another way to make it affordable. And if you're eating at home and making your own meals, it's going to be far less expensive than eating at restaurants or even eating packaged foods that are sold at places like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or using any of those um, de meal delivery systems that are sort of prepackaged and shipped to you. So eating at home will ensure that you are getting the healthiest food possible and at the lowest cost, actually. Now, some people with MS, we struggle cooking in the kitchen. Maybe we have heat sensitivity, or for me, I can't cut as safely with knives anymore. Do you have some tips that you would share? Sure, absolutely. You know, I think producing your own food at home is a big commitment. It takes time and patience and skills. And many of us have grown up not learning how to cook for ourselves. And that's okay, because I was one of those people and I'm learning every day how to make healthier food that's you know made from scratch. But for me, it also has to be really easy. So if skill is an issue for you, it's never too late to start learning. And I don't think any of us have to make gourmet meals. I make really simple things that are healthy that I can eat and just feel good about. So keeping it simple is really important. I think also just having a schedule where two, maybe one or two days a week you prep. So on a Sunday or a Wednesday, you can cut up your vegetables and maybe make a pot of beans that you can use throughout the week. And sometimes I'll make large pots of beans and I'll freeze the rest in my glass 
food storage containers because I just don't want to have to make it over and over, right? If it's between canned beans and my own frozen beans made from scratch, I'll take my frozen beans any day. So uh, do, having a couple of prep days helps. And if fatigue is an issue, I would do it in um, small bursts. So, you know, something I like to do is in the morning, I'll chop things. Right before lunch, I'll kind of throw them all into the pot or pan and cook it. And I might not even wash dishes for several hours later. So I try not to do it all in one shot. I think breaking it up really helps. Or I might even chop, chop things the night before. Um, sometimes people say, I really can't stand at the kitchen counter and, and chop. You can actually sit. So a lot of people don't think about that. And they'll say, well, I don't have a kitchen counter where my legs can get under. You can actually take your cutting board and put it on your dining table and just cut there. And just go slow, put on music that you love and just think of it as meditation as you're doing that re repetitive motion. And, and then just look at all the beautiful colors that are infused in the foods you're, you're touching and it can actually be something really enjoyable. Um, so aside from, let's see, we talked about, um, a, a, we talked about a few things that we can do. Uh, additionally, if there are people in your life that are good cooks, maybe you can ask them to make a little bit extra and share with you. I have patients who um, collaborate with their neighbors and, um, you know, in return might do something for their neighbor that they're, they they're good at. So, you know, I know it's hard to ask for help, but I think if you're dealing with a condition like MS and you have limitations, it's okay to ask and we shouldn't um, let our pride get in the way. And th the flip side of it is a lot of people do actually like to help and it makes them feel good to help. So you wouldn't want to deprive them of that. So do ask if you need help. I agree. And you know, an unexpected surprise and, and something that's really become something that Eric and I love is we cook together now every night. And so I will do the things that I can still comfortably do and he will do the other things. And it's, it's really a fun time that we have together. So it's, it's really enjoyable, much more so than just one person being alone in the kitchen. I assume, do your kids help, help out from time to time as well? They do. Uh, I have even let my four-year-old handle the big knife and it's amazing what they can do when you empower them and say you are in charge of salad and you know there are times where it's like I actually smell food cooking so I have to run and make sure that you know they're being safe with the stove but my nine-year-old can actually cook on the stove and so it's wonderful to get kids involved with food and nutrition and cooking because these are life skills and so important because it's a foundational skill for good health. I agree. Now I wanted to mention, you mentioned cooking in batches and that's also something that we've tried recently and we're really happy with it. We will go to Costco or do a big shopping trip and then we'll make 10 or 12 breakfast burritos or something similar and then put half of them in the freezer. And it turns out that then when we need a quick meal, we still have something that is on plan, healthy, readily available to eat. 
That is actually a great idea. And we try to do that as well. I'll tell you, when my mom comes to visit, we have her make us our favorite Iranian dishes. And I have containers and containers of it in my freezer. And I'll just pull out what I need for the next day and it's ready to go. So it does take a little bit of planning, but um, it, it makes a big impact. And it's less stress if you are always sort of thinking about your next meal several hours to a day ahead of time so that you're like, well, this is what I'm gonna do tomorrow. And then you just do it rather than having a last minute, you know, uh, meltdown of, okay, how am I gonna feed my family right now or I have nothing to eat. Uh, you know, when we were talking, your question, your question about um, easy ways of getting meals in, I also want to make sure we talk about things that are easy, like smoothies. You know, I'm not talking about Jamba Juice. I'm talking about healthy smoothies made of lots and lots of vegetables. There's protein in there, like nuts and seeds. You might throw an avocado in there for, for some fat, good fat. And that can actually serve as a meal and no fire required. I really like no fire required meals because they're easy. And if you make your smoothie with the right ingredients, it'll keep you full for three to four hours. And you just consumed a bunch of plant-based foods without having to chew through it. So that's one easy way to get a lot more plants in. Um, I like slow cookers where you throw everything in and come out many, come back many hours later. I mean, that's my kind of cooking. And then there's pressure cookers. Uh, we have an Instant Pot, which I really enjoy. There was a little bit of a learning curve at first, but you know, I've gotten the hang of it and I use it for the things that I um, regularly make. And one other strategy you shared with me was sheet pan dinners. Can you share a little bit more about those? Yeah, like, you know, I like things simple. So I came across something on the internet where you could put a bunch of vegetables and you could put your protein. Now it could even be a small piece of an animal protein, right? A piece of chicken or beef or fish all right on the same pan. You know, you will have like put some olive oil, um, salt and pepper on there. And then you just put the pan in and then pull it out 20 to 30 minutes later and you actually have a meal. You can actually go online and look for one, let's see, what are they called? One sheet meals or one pan meals. You know, you'll see a bunch of recipes and there's beautiful pictures. And this is something when I looked at it, I thought I can do that. I just have to put those things right on the pan and they're going to cook. And they do. It's amazing. You know, it's easy. That's wonderful. I'm definitely going to try that. Anything else that you want to share? You know, one thing that's really important is variety. And this is a theme that comes up a lot. The more diverse your diet, the more diverse your microbiome. In fact, there are really um, cool studies where they have looked at the microbiome of people um, as they went from one diet to the next. And within a day and a half, the microbiome shifts when you change your, your diet. So if you want to make a significant impact on the types of bugs growing in your GI tract, switch to a healthier diet. It's just what happens. It's what your body's programmed to do. So that is fascinating. So yeah. quick. 
It's so quick. And that makes me feel like I have control over something, right? I can choose what I eat and that'll determine what my microbiome looks like. And we have a, a game we're playing at home right now where we're writing down everything that we eat over seven days, trying to figure out how many different ingredients we hit. And this is something I do with patients too. I say, ideally you get to 75. If you can get to 100, that's great. If you can get to 200, you're superhuman and doing, you know, an exceptional job. But I think if you can get to a 75 and up to 100, that's pretty significant. And you get, um, you, you get credit for every spice, uh, different oils. So when you start thinking about variety, all of a sudden you'll think, oh, I'm making oatmeal. How about I put four different spices in it because I want to get credit for all of them, right? So now you've expanded your diet and you've added a bunch of healthy antioxidants to your diet. That sounds like a really fun challenge I want to try. Thank you for that. So you alluded to earlier that there are a lot of different food plans out there. And specifically, there's a lot of them that are targeted for people like us. And it's really hard sometimes to know what is the right plan for us. And for example, you had, you suggested the mito food plan for me for fatigue, but I'm curious, what would you say to someone who's trying to find the right plan? That's a great question because I think there are a lot of us out there who are trying to do the very best for our health. And sometimes there's a little bit of anxiety that comes along with that because you want to find the perfect diet for MS, right? And this is the question I get all the time. I have blank. What is the right diet for me? And no matter what your condition is, I'm going to talk to you about general principles that we talked about earlier, right? Whole foods, plant-based, no sugar, prebiotics, probiotics, organic, non-GMO, lots and lots of color. Those are the most important things. The details are up to you based on your food preferences. Um, for example, there's a lot of cultural aspects to food and the things that we, we want to eat. So you get to choose within those broad guidelines what you are going to consume. I suggest if nutrition is something new to you, start with like a really basic plan of good eating, something like maybe the Mediterranean diet or a plant-based diet based on, you know, and there's lots of food plans out there that you can utilize. Now, there are other diets. We, you know, we talk a lot about ketogenic diets. And when you talked about the mito diet, that um, can be adapted to become a ketogenic diet. I'd like to spend a little time talking about that because they are a more advanced strategy in terms of nutrition for MS and fatigue. Okay, so ketogenic diets are low in carbohydrates. They contain moderate amounts of protein and they contain lots of uh, plant-based fats. Okay, and I wanna make the point that these are plant-based fats. If you start eating a bunch of animal-based fats, you will get inflamed. So don't do that. So what happens with uh, ketogenesis is that because you're limiting your carbohydrate intake, when your body needs energy, it's going to burn through your carbohydrate stores very quickly. And now you're done. There's no more carbs left to break down. The next thing your body's going to tap into is fat. 
And if you can break down fat, you will produce ketone bodies. And ketone bodies are a super fuel for the brain. So when people get into the space of ketosis or ketogenesis, they may feel more awake, alert. They may be better able to concentrate. Mood, like depression and anxiety can improve. Pain can improve, including headaches and migraines energy improves, okay? So what's happening is that you are eating in a way that is optimizing the energy output from your mitochondria, okay? So mitochondria are these very small um, components of cells. Every cell might have somewhere between 500 to a couple thousand mitochondria. And the main job of the mitochondria is to produce energy in the form of a molecule called ATP. And when your body needs energy, you're going to break apart an ATP molecule, release energy, and that's how you have converted food to energy. So with ketogenesis, you actually increase the amount of ATP produced, your mitochondria function better, and you may actually produce more mitochondria. So now your body is well-fueled, and a lot of neurodegenerative uh, conditions improve um, when the, the person is in ketosis. In fact, I think it's really interesting. Ketosis is used as a strategy in children with seizure disorders. When they eat, in a manner that gets them into ketosis and the brain is well-fueled, they have less seizures. That same benefit can be extended to other brain-related conditions. And so uh, all of the symptoms I mentioned improve if you get into ketosis. Now, it is a little bit of work to get into ketosis and you have to be a little savvy about you know, food and nutrition and being able to get the right foods um, into your home so that you can prepare the meals and eat them. So it's not where I would start right away, but it's something to work up to. And even if you are in what I call subketosis, where you're not quite producing ketone bodies, if you still eat in this manner where you're restricting carbs, it's still really helpful, right? Um, carbs tend to raise our blood sugars, depending on what kind of carbs we're consuming. Most of us are not eating just complex carbs. We're eating a lot of simple carbs that are broken down very easily and result in a large spike in insulin and, and sh blood sugar. So the more you can restrict carbs, especially the bad carbs, the better you'll do, the better your um, sugar regulation systems will work, the more stable your blood sugar will be. And I want to make the distinction that this is not important just for diabetics. When blood sugar control gets wacky, it leads to inflammation. It leads to hormone uh, imbalances. For example, every time you eat something sugary, you spike your insulin. Insulin causes your cortisol to spike. And when cortisol is constantly being spiked, it can have an effect on all the other downstream hormones like thyroid and your sex hormones. So I always say, fortunately or unfortunately, it's all connected. For sure. Is there anything else about keto that you feel like sharing today? Or I'm curious how keto and fasting can work together. Sure. So um, ke ketogenic diets, um, 
are hard to do long term. I do know who people who do them. They're just in that mindset and they put their mind to it and do it and and they keep it up because they feel good when they're in ketosis. And so I think it's useful and it's a healthy way of eating as long as you limit the animal proteins. Now, if you're a vegan, it's going to be more challenging to do a ketogenic diet because a lot of plant-based foods might have too much carbs in them. And just to kind of give you guys some guidelines, if you can limit your carbs under 80 to 100 grams a day, that's a great start into helping out your mitochondria. To get into ketosis, most people have to restrict their carbs to under 20 to 30 grams a day, which is very little carbs. And there are lots of apps that you can download to help track your food. And if you want to see if you're in ketosis, I would purchase um, urinary ketone sticks where you do like a first morning urine um, to see if there's the presence of um, ketones in the urine. Sometimes those are a little hard to read. So the slightly more elegant way of doing it is to do a little finger stick and check blood. This is something you can actually do at home. There's, there's um, kits for this as well. So that's a little more um, advanced. But either way, I think if you can just uh, limit carbs, you will start really feeling the benefit of it. And then you talked about fasting, which is sort of my new fascination and something that I'm spending more time learning about and incorporating into my own regimen. You know, I've always known that people, that we all eat too much, right? Uh, our portion sizes are huge. Um, food is something that we are constantly coming in contact with. And we actually have to go out of our way to avoid food in, in this country. So in some ways we're blessed, but it's not really a healthy thing. So when when we can limit the amount of food we eat, maybe by 30%, it's actually very helpful in helping us better balance our antioxidant systems. So we talked earlier about antioxidants being found in those colorful vegetables. They protect plant cells. When we consume them, those same molecules um, will uh, protect our cells. One other way to maximize the amount of antioxidants in your body is to undergo a period of fasting. And now, you know, fasting has been, um, in, you know, utilized over centuries by many, many different cultures and societies. And so it is basically a way of limiting how much food we consume. There are lots of different ways to fast. And when we undergo a fast, we build up huge stores of antioxidants because we have not used our antioxidants to neutralize the process of digesting food, okay? So now you have more antioxidants left for healing, right? So when we talk about how does healing happen, this is another example. You build up antioxidants so they can actually heal your own cells. So lots of different fasting regimens exist and I think, first of all, you should make sure that it's safe for you to fast. So for example, if you have diabetes and unstable blood sugars and you're taking medications to lower your blood sugar, jumping into a fasting regimen 
is not what you want to do, okay? Because you might actually have a hypoglycemic event, which can be very dangerous, if not life-threatening. So you want to ease into fasting, and I'll talk to you about a couple of different ways of doing that. So my favorite thing actually to do is to do what we call a... Um, time-restricted feeding, which a lot of people call intermittent fasting. So this is a fast between dinner and breakfast. And guess what? Many of you are already doing this. So you can maybe start giving yourself credit for it, but then you could be more intentional about it and work with it in, um, in a more regular manner. So imagine if you have your dinner early and you delay your breakfast by a few hours overnight. So now you may be going 12 to 14 hours fasting. So many of us do that already without realizing it. So you might finish dinner at 7 p.m. and have your breakfast at 7 a.m. And that's a 12-hour fast. Maybe the hard part of that is not doing a, a late-night snack, right? After you finish eating dinner, you're done. Now, if 12 to 14 hours fast, fasting overnight feels easy to you and it feels good to you, you can increase that by a few more hours. So I will have patients go to 15, 16 hours. Some take it even at 18 to 20 hours. The thing I tell everybody is whatever you do, you're listening to your body and it has to feel good. If you are making yourself go to 18 hours because you think 18 is better than 12, and you feel bad at 18 hours, well, that's too much. If your body has wisdom. It's gonna tell you this doesn't feel good and you must listen to that. So you can start with 12 to 14 and lengthen it as you go. Studies show that going much more than 14 hours is just marginally beneficial. So you know, if you're that type A personality and you wanna just do things uh, a little bit more on the extreme side, you're not getting that much more benefit pushing it to 20 hours, okay? And also for this fasting regimen to really make a dent in it, if you could do it four to five times a week, that would actually be really impactful. So you're gonna fast overnight, start with 12 to 14 hours, and then lengthen it as you like, and try to do it four to five days a week. Doesn't matter which days, just pick four to five. So I think that's an easy way to start. And I just find it's easy to delay breakfast. I know we always used to tell people, everybody has to eat breakfast. Got to jumpstart your metabolism in the morning. I just don't know if that holds true. So listen to your body. And um, that's one way of incorporating fasting. The other way of incorporating fasting is to do longer fasts. So some people may opt to do... Um, a 24-hour fast. I wouldn't start there. It's something that you can work up to, but this is something that I've gotten really good at incorporating into my schedule. So when I have a busy work day where I'm working all day long, here's how I do a 24-hour fast once a week. I will eat dinner Monday night, and then I don't eat anything for breakfast Tuesday morning, I'm busy and then I miss lunch because I'm still busy seeing patients and then I'll just eat dinner the same time as I last ate finished dinner the night before easy you get 24 hours in without really actually being too hungry even now it's really important when you're fasting to drink a lot of water you got to keep hydrated and also if you wanted to have a green tea 
or a black coffee in the morning, that's perfectly fine. You can give yourself credit for continuing your fast. But the most important thing is you're just listening to your body. When things don't feel good, you feel lethargic, you're dizzy, lightheaded, grouchy even, it just might be too much for you. Thank you for that reminder. That's definitely something I'm learning to focus on. And so far, my body has not led me astray. So learning how to listen to my own body has been a journey. It's not easy, but very worth it. Yeah, and you know, there's times where I break my fast 22 hours in. And yeah, while that might feel like a failure to somebody who's a very type A personality, I also remind myself, oh, I'm so glad I was just kind of paying attention to my body. I was hungry and I just ate dinner two hours earlier. That's fine. I give myself credit for paying attention and not driving myself so hard. I agree. That's an important lesson for a lot of us to be learning. Hmm. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about food sensitivities and why someone might want to consider trying something like an elimination diet. This is a really common um, problem that I see in those with autoimmunity. So what is a food sensitivity? Well, there are different kinds of food sensitivities. There's IgE reactions that are anaphylactic. You know within five seconds that you are about to get ill. And those are very easy to identify. There are food intolerances like lactose intolerance, Most of you might know what that feels like. You might get quite gassy or bloated after consuming dairy products, and that's because you're lacking the enzyme that breaks down uh, lactose. And then there's your IgG food reactions, which are very hard to pick up because there isn't this immediate feedback. You eat the food and you know you feel bad. It could be delayed by hours to a couple days. And so we should talk about what's actually normal. It is not normal to produce antibodies to food. You're not supposed to produce antibodies to food. You're also not supposed to produce antibodies to your own blood tissue, to your own uh, body tissues, which um, all of us have gotten very good at doing. So is it a surprise that people with autoimmunity also have food sensitivities? No, because it's really a continuum of the same problem. It's a disordered or dysregulated immune system that has sort of forgotten what to attack and what to leave alone. So when your immune system forgets and starts attacking your own tissues, it might also forget and start attacking food. And so you produce antibodies to these foods. So I do have autoimmune patients who say, nope, I don't have any food sensitivities. And that still doesn't eliminate the need maybe to undergo an elimination diet. So what is an elimination diet? It is a way of sorting out food sensitivities and there's a methodical way of going through it. And as soon as I start talking about it, people will say, well, can I just get a blood test? Yes, you can get a blood test for IgG antibodies, but the the tests often are not very accurate. They may have false positives and false negatives, meaning that it might pick up food sensitivities that aren't really real for you, and it might miss things that you know you react to. So I don't put a lot of weight on blood testing. And then there's skin testing, which just shows whether or not you're reacting to something at the level of the skin. So I don't really utilize either of them. The 
food elimination and reintroduction process is actually the gold standard for sorting out food sensitivities. And the way you do it is you abstain from certain foods for a period of time. And if you are actually making antibodies to these foods, you're going to allow these antibody levels to come down as you abstain from those foods. So you kind of let the body cool off and you try to see if you feel better during the elimination period. And once you've gone maybe six weeks maximum, cutting foods out, it's time to reintroduce. So one by one, you're gonna bring foods back, eat them heavily over 72 hours to see if there is a perceptible reaction. Now, and the reaction doesn't have to be gastrointestinal. It could be headaches, it could be skin, mood, balance, brain fog, any of those things can happen. So is it worth doing this? Absolutely, 100% if you are dealing with an autoimmune condition. Is it easy? It's actually very involved and it might be the one thing I have people work on as the only thing that they're working on. So you have to prepare your house, make sure that you have foods to eat because this, this uh, exercise is not the elimination of food, it's just the elimination of certain foods. And um, we also, in place of eliminating those foods, we want you to eat a lot of really healthful foods that are actually gonna heal your inflamed areas. So once you're done with the elimination, you got to do the test and you, re you reintroduce things back and see how you feel. If you don't react to something after eating it for three days, you're good to go. You can keep eating that food. If you have a reaction, you might want to abstain from that food for sometimes six to nine months while you work on optimizing your uh, GI tract um, through various protocols that I use. So that's interesting. So I did the traditional allergy test. Things came back negative, but by doing the elimination diet, I was able to identify a handful of things that were triggering reactions in me. But what I just heard you say is that it's possible that over time, I could try those things again and not have a reaction. Definitely. So I want to make the distinction between IgE food reactions that are anaphylactic. You'll probably never eat those foods again. With IgG food reactions, if you can heal the gut and heal what we call leaky gut or hyperpermeable gut, and there um, is now a nice, clean, tight barrier between what's inside your GI tract and the body, um, hopefully you can, you can tolerate those foods um, down the line once you've healed the GI tract. That's exciting. It is exciting. And I should just say, I, I want people to think about this. The most common foods that cause trouble for people are gluten and dairy. Those are the top two things, followed by corn, soy, and eggs. And then there's a whole host of other foods. In fact, any food can lead to uh, a reaction in, in a person. So it could be nightshades, like potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, um, peppers, goji berries, it could be nuts, it could be seeds, it could be quinoa, I mean, it could be anything. And this list of the top foods that I mentioned are generally the foods that we eat most commonly. So they're the most commonly found foods in our diet. So there's just the most opportunity to make antibodies against these foods. So if you are interested in undergoing an elimination diet, there's lots of information online 
And I would say if you can pull out multiple foods simultaneously, that's more helpful. Um, but it's, if that's too daunting, that shouldn't stop you from doing this experiment anyways. You could pull out one or two foods at a time. Pull out gluten by itself or pull out dairy by itself or pull them out together, gluten and dairy together. And most people will notice a difference. That's helpful. I know I certainly did. So let's switch gears one more time here. And I want to hear you share a little bit about supplementation. A lot of MS programs suggest heavy supplementation, which is expensive and can also get overwhelming. What are your thoughts on this and what would you recommend? Thank you for asking this question because it's a really important one. There's a whole industry out there that has figured out how to take natural molecules and package them into supplements. And while I think there's appropriate supplementation, um, I don't think that people need to be on 20 or 30 different products. I don't think that supplements work in the absence of good habits. They might help you just a little bit, but the effect is not going to be sustained. And so your true foundation is sticking to good nutrition, sleep, exercise, movement, stress management, avoiding toxins. And that's what's going to get you far. And then to fine tune things, I think you should have a very judici judicious approach to supplements. So uh, my top two supplements that I think uh, every human should be on is vitamin D and omega-3, okay? Because we don't get enough of these two things in our diet. And when they are low, it leads to immune dysregulation. And when you replace them, you bring regulation back to the immune system. So that's why I think these two items are really important to have on board, um, whether or not you're on a DMT or not. Now, I found one of the things you said there really interesting. You talked, I, I wanna make sure I understand it, that supplementation could help us short term, but then after a while, it will lose its power. Can you talk just a little bit more about that? I mean, I think I've, I say that because I've seen that with patients, they will um, start a supplement, they'll say, I feel great on it. And then a month later or two months later, that effect wanes. And we don't really know all the mechanisms behind it. But when you start taking a substance, whether it's a medication or a hormone or a supplement, there are changes at the cellular level, at the receptor levels. And I think if you can just rely on food, it's much more physiologic, it's much safer, and it's actually less expensive. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, products out on the market that are quite expensive, and I just don't know if that, they're that efficacious. When I step back and look at my practice, my most successful patients aren't the ones that have a list of 30 supplements. They're the ones who are just taking two or three supplements, but they otherwise work really hard to stick to their good habits. That's really helpful to hear. Is there anything else you want to say today to listeners living with MS and, and that really want to learn to live better? Well, since we're on the topic of nutrition, I will say that without a doubt, food is medicine. It will heal you in broad ways that no other medication can do. And I think it's time that we really start talking about food as a therapy 
for all of these chronic conditions that are now even affecting our children. So we can use medications and there's a time and place for that, but I think that it's equally important to engage in good nutritionist, nutritious habits and Unfortunately, it does take some effort to learn what is good eating because our food system has gotten so complex um, and, and it's hard to know, is this food healthy or not? So sometimes you have to take a class or get into a program where you can actually learn those differences so that you can make better choices as a consumer. And I just want to also say, while you know we don't have the, back, the resources of big food corporations, we can vote with our money. We can vote for organic food. We can buy, by purchasing food from local organic farmers. And over time, that's going to make an impact. Let's hope. Well, I cannot thank you enough for joining us again today. I know that I learn something new every time I talk with you. And I'm excited that we've been able to share more information about healthy nutrition with the audience this week. So thank you. Thanks for having me. My hope is that after listening to this episode, the biggest takeaways you leave with are that first, we realize that there is no quick fix or magic pill for healing MS. Rather, it's a series of lifestyle choices that makes the biggest impact on our health or lack thereof. And nutrition is a big one since it's how we fuel our bodies. Second, that we all have a deeper understanding of the fundamental building blocks of good nutrition and why food is our most important medicine as people living with MS. Third, that we can appreciate that not unlike our MS, choosing an approach to nutrition in the form of a particular diet or food plan is a personal choice. Some will work better for each of us. So getting to know our bodies and how they react to different ways of eating is important data to have to drive our future food choices. Fourth, that we acknowledge the high rate of food sensitivities that we, as people living with MS, face and how important it is to be able to identify our own unique food sensitivities and eliminate those foods from our ongoing diets. And finally, that we recognize the role supplements can play in our short-term health goals, while acknowledging that for long-term sustained nutritional health, our food truly is our best medicine. Following this and every podcast, I offer Zoom sessions for our Patreon listeners to discuss the episode's topic together. I hope you will join us. Become a patron on patreon.com slash msflock for the Zoom session schedule and invitation links. Membership is only $1 a month to access these important flockings and more content. Flock members, I look forward to seeing you Saturday where you can ask Dr. Peyrovi any questions you may have about nutrition for MS. And as always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be well. <laughs>